Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you to all of you for coming. I want to give you a brief introduction to the exhibition, which you can see upstairs. I'm one of three curators, I should add. I'm the curator here at the Royal Academy for the Old Master exhibitions and one of three curators who has worked on this show. It is really the brainchild of Arturo Galanzino, who was my predecessor here at the Royal Academy. He is now uh, in Florence, he's the director of the Palazzo Strozzi, and Simone Facchinetti. And the two of them have already curated um, the Moroni exhibition, which some of you may have seen, um, I think a couple of years ago. And it was really their brainchild, and I joined the team last summer when I started working here. Now this picture I took a couple of weeks ago, exactly two weeks ago, and it was a very proud moment. The poster had just gone up, and it was Monday morning, similarly sunny day as today, and it was the first day of our installation. And now exhibitions like this, although it is, this is a very small exhibition in the Sackler Galleries with only 46 works, they still take years in preparation. Um, and this one took about two years in preparing it. And um, as I said, I, I joined the team last summer. And that is the most intense, the busiest period when most loan requests were already sent. The letters were sent, but we hadn't really heard from many lenders yet. So we were all anxious it was, if we would be able to um, you know, actually pull it off. And then the closer you come to the actual opening of the exhibition, we curators, we have endless meetings with our marketing department and with the designers, and we have to discuss all kinds of things like these posters and, um, uh, and the design of the exhibition. And so to first see it actually go up on the facade is very exciting indeed. Um, and it was the Monday when we, um, we did a paper hang that day, and, um, and you must imagine, we actually do paper cutouts of all the pictures that will be in the show, and we hang them in the galleries um, to just sort of know exactly where they will go once they start arriving, um, and, and we started installing on the Tuesday, and it takes a week to hang the exhibition. And for us, again, it is very exciting because little by little we see everything that we sort of thought up over such a long period of time actually taking shape and entering the gallery um, the gallery walls. Um, I want to start by um, telling you a little bit more about sort of the, the process of how these exhibitions come into life. Um, it basically all starts with with, a, with an idea, um, and uh, in this case, the idea was to do an exhibition. Uh, on the first decade or so of the 16th century, the beginning of the golden age of Venetian painting. And the protagonist that we identified, um, or that really Arturo and Simona identified to concentrate on um, two years ago was, was Giorgione. And I will say more about Giorgione in a minute. But um, um, so when you, when you start an exhibition, um, you have to know, basically, and, and, and you think about um, the story you want to tell, but you, you need the objects to tell it with, because that's what an exhibition is, of course. And, um, and so you have, a, you, 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 you have a list of sort of key works that you start, um, uh, you start talking to the, to the owning, to the institutions who own them, and if they, if they would at all be willing to lend them. Um, you create a shopping list, as it were. And very much on the top of our shopping list was, um, was this picture. It's uh, perhaps Giorgione's most famous work uh, from the Academia in Venice, the so-called Tempesta, the Tempest. Um, and, uh, and the Academia very quickly uh, made it clear that they would not send this picture, uh, um, which was disappointing. But uh, the picture has been here before. In 1930, the Royal Academy did a huge exhibition on Italian art with about a 1,000 works. And um, lo and behold, La Tempesta was here in 1930. Um, uh, Botticelli's uh, Botticelli, another um, important name at the moment in, in London. Botticelli's Birth of Venus was also here. Um, those were the days. Um, none of these pictures, none of these pictures, sadly, travel anymore. Um, and it becomes harder and harder doing exhibitions on old master pictures. It becomes harder and harder to negotiate these loans. A lot of them are on panel. They're incredibly fragile. Um, and they simply do not travel anymore. Yes, in 1930 they did, um, uh, and now often they don't. So that is the first hurdle that we have to take. So we knew that La Tempesta could not come, um, sadly. Um, but we went down our shopping list, and another very important, very famous picture um, is this one, um, which is very much a similar type of picture, which again I will talk about in a minute. But this picture you may know um, in the National, from the National Gallery, 
the so-called Tramonto, the sunset by Giorgione. Uh, and this picture, um, so we started talking to the, to the National Gallery and it quickly became clear that they would be inclined to, to send it to us. Um, and, and so then all of a sudden you start thinking maybe we can actually do this exhibition. So this uh, picture you will see um, upstairs. You can usually see it just down the road, but here it is um, in the context of, of um, uh, uh, really Giorgione's contemporaries. And I think you learn a lot more about this picture and its context seeing it here in the exhibition. Um, another picture uh, that we asked for um, was this picture. And you probably don't know this picture. It is much less known. Uh, it is the so-called terrace portrait um, uh, from, uh, that is now in San Diego at the San Diego Museum of Art. It is one of only two works by Giorgione that are inscribed on the back of the panel, identifying Giorgione as the artist. Um, so Giorgione didn't sign his paintings, um, and he died very young. He was in his early 30s. He painted very few pictures. And um, sadly, art historians over the last 500 years um, have disagreed about what he painted, what he didn't paint. So there's really only a handful of pictures that, are, that we're reasonably sure are by him. Um, and then another maybe handful of pictures where all art historians more or less agree. So that gives you 10 or maybe a dozen of pictures. Um, and this work, um, which is tiny, it is about the size of an A4 sheet of paper, uh, is sort of the keystone, because it has this ins contemporary inscription on the back of the panel. It's the keystone that holds together this very fragile construct um, that is Giorgione. Um, uh, so San Diego, and a lot of people don't know the picture because it is slightly off the beaten track in California. We were thrilled when, when San Diego said that they were willing to consider sending it. It is on panel, again, incredibly fragile, um, and it is now opening our exhibition upstairs. And in my view, it is the most beautiful picture in the show, but I will explain why I think that. Um, and then, uh, of course, when we talked to the Academia, uh, and they said they couldn't send the Tempesta, we, we, um, of course, we kept asking. <laughs> And, um, and to our great surprise, and we didn't really think that it would be possible, we expected them to say no to, to the Tempesta, and in fact we didn't really ask for it, we just brought it up in conversation. Um, we also brought um, uh, this picture up, um, uh, uh, which is La, La Vecchia, um, which again is an incredibly important picture. It is part of the core group of, of works that everybody agrees are by Giorgione. It is documented already in the 16th century in the Vendramin collection in Venice. Um, and, and the Academia said, yes, they would think about sending it. So um, then all of a sudden we had three really important works by Giorgione, the terrace portrait, uh, Il Tramonto from the National Gallery and La Vecchia, um, and then we knew we could, we could do this show. And it's not a monographic show on Giorgione, it is a show on the very much um, on a moment in time, the beginning of the golden age of painting in Venice. Um, but with these three key works, we knew that we could call the exhibition In the Age of Giorgione um, without making fools of ourselves. So I want to say a little bit about, um, give you a little bit of a context about Venice. Um, as you walk up um, and you're outside the Sackler Galleries, you will, you will see this map, which is a map by Jacopo de Barbari, a very famous map, which he did um, in the year 1500, which is really exactly the moment when, sort of the beginning of our exhibition. And you look at Venice um, in this bird's eye view of Venice, and you see Venice hasn't really changed very much over the last 500 years. Um, and um, you see San Marco here and the, the Grand Canal, of course, go flowing, going right through Venice here. And so the idea is that you, um, as you enter the galleries, that you, that you have a look at Venice from the outside and you get a sense of what we're talking about. And then as you enter the gallery, you experience Florence, sorry, Florence, Venice, of course, <laughs> um, from, from within through the art that was being produced. Um, in these streets at the time, in, those, in that first decade of the 16th century. Venice at the time was an incredibly important place. Um, Florence had been important in, in, you know, in, the, in the 15th century, but its great moment had, had passed, and Rome wasn't really happening quite yet. Um, Milan was really um, off the beaten track at the time. Venice was where it was at. So you have to imagine Venice, which was a thriving economic capital, 
uh, Venice was very much the the um, uh, the hub to the east, the, the gateway to the to the east. All of the merchants from all over Europe they had an office in um, in in Venice at the time, and it was very much the New York City of its of its day. And you know, it, I think it is looking at it here, um, it is a um, appropriate comparison if you think of Manhattan as you know being an island and and Venice this tiny sort of island. We often think of. Um, and, and a lot of the money that was so it was incredibly wealthy and 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 thriving economic um, capital, but a lot of that money was spent, like in New York today, um, was spent on art. Fortunately for us, um, and we often think as art historians that we look at a period of artists and we think artist A may have influenced artist B, and you see certain similarities, and then you look at a map like this and you realize. They didn't influence each other. They, they, they didn't just know each other. They were on top of each other. They couldn't escape each other. Venice is tiny, and it was tiny then. And if we think of Bellini and Titian and Giorgiorno, all our protagonists in, in the show upstairs, uh, they couldn't uh, avoid each other. And, and it's important to always keep that in mind. Um, I want, just want to point out one important part of the city so sadly, we don't know where any of um, our protagonists, uh, Bellini or Titian or Giorgione, had their studio in Venice. It would have been somewhere, somewhere here, but um, it is not documented. What we do know is that um, the Germans, the Germans, the, uh, <laughs> the, the merchants, the, the, um, uh, who had a great interest, of course, in, in making lots of money in, in Venice at the time, um, they were all based around here in this area. This is the Rialto Bridge. At the time, the only bridge connecting one part of the, um, uh, of the Grand Canal to the other. Uh, and there's a building here, which you probably can't see in the reproduction, but it is right here, the so-called Fondaco dei Tedeschi. And that was a, a basically the, the place where all the merchants had the German, the northerners, not only the Germans, but the, the northerners in general uh, had their, their offices and where they did their trading from. Uh, and in 1908, both Giorgione and the young Titian were commissioned to paint frescoes on the facade uh, of, of the Fonda Codet Tedeschi. That's the only time that they're documented where we think that they must have met on the scaffolding of that, of that building, of the Fonda Codet Tedeschi. And another important building is just down here, which doesn't survive uh, today, but the Delta, the Campanile, still survives, a church called San Bartolomeo. And that was the church of the, uh, of the German community at the time. Uh, there, was, there were important artists coming through Venice, so it was a sort of melting pot. Um, one of them was Leonardo da Vinci, who came through Venice in, in 1500, um, probably on his way back from Milan to Florence. And another one was, uh, was Albrecht Dürer. Now Dürer, and we start the exhibition with two portraits um, by Dürer that we show next to the terrace portrait. Uh, which makes a beautiful opening room to the exhibition. And Dürer was in Venice twice. He visited Venice once in the 1490s, and he came back exactly in those years that we're looking at. Um, he came back in 1505 and stayed until 1507, so, so he was there for a year and a half. Uh, and he must have been very much involved in, with that German community. And his most famous work, uh, which of course is not in the exhibition, but is this altarpiece, uh, which is now in, uh, in Prague. Uh, the Madonna of the of the Rose Garlands, and if you there's this one of the patrons probably this man here, uh, Burkhard of Speyer, and there's a portrait, an individual portrait that um, that Dürer also painted in 1506, and you'll see it upstairs in the exhibition. So this altarpiece was in the church of San Bartolomeo, just right next to the Fondaco. So it's important that we actually know their documents that prove that they were all, you know, they were. In the walking the same streets, you know, Dürer and Titian and Giorgione in the same years. So I, I think that is always important to remember. And this I show you because it is um, perhaps the only documented work by Giorgione, uh, which, uh, and, and it hardly survives. It's the only fresco um, uh, by Giorgione from the Fondo Codet Tedeschi that survives. It is uh, at the moment on display at the Palazzo Grimani, but it will go back to the Academia when they finish their, their restoration. It is about life-size, uh, unusually large for Giorgione. Um, and this is a detail of the, of the, of the upper half um, known as La Nuda, the nude. Uh, and we know um, little else about it. I just thought I'd show it to you as, as the one sort of surviving, documented survival.
So this is the portrait on the first portrait on the left-hand side. It is by Giovanni Bellini. Now Bellini, of course, was the, was the most important artist in Venice still at the time. He was getting older, though. He was in his 70s, and he would eventually die in 1516 in his mid-80s. Um, so he's getting older, but uh, when Dürer arrives in his mid-30s, when he arrives in, in Venice, he writes back to a friend in Germany and says, Bellini, is, he's, getting old, he's very old, but he's still the best of them all. So Giovanni Bellini is still, he was the great, important, most important artist of the late 15th century in Venice. He really put Venice on the, on the artistic map. Um, and, uh, and he was still around, and very much so. Um, less with his portraits, he played an important role in, in, um, in portraiture. But this is in developing the genre in, in Venice in the end, of the, the end of the 15th century. This is the last portrait he painted. It is from the, from the Royal Collection. And we're thrilled to have it and to be able to open the, the show with it. Um, uh, uh, it is the first portrait, the only portrait of his with the, with the landscape uh, uh, background, so it's slightly unusual from that point of view. Um, but it still represents very much sort of this 15th century type. Um, and you see um, uh, so the, the, this parapet here in the foreground. You often find it in, in Venetian portraits and in portraits by, by Bellini. He's got a little, um, this fictive sheet of paper down here um, with his name on it. So it is an early example of an artist's signature. Um, few artists at the time signed their pictures. Um, Bellini did, um, and we see it here. And, um, and Albrecht Dürer did it as well with his famous monogram that you often find on his pictures. But artists at the time didn't yet, you know, the characteristic, the artist's signature in the bottom right-hand corner didn't really exist yet. So Giovanni Bellini is sort of the, um, uh, the pivotal, the, 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 great, the great figure of Venetian art, and he's our point of departure. And what we try to explore in the exhibition is this sort of pivotal moment, the transition from Bellini to Titian. So from the 15th century, very much the century of Bellini, to the 16th century, the golden age of Venetian painting, the century of Titian. And we did an exhibition here at the Royal Academy in 1983, which, which some of you might remember. Um, I don't, I never saw it. <laughs> um, but uh, it was a big exhibition on our main floor galleries um, with about a thousand works. Um, it was called The Genius of Venice. And it was looking at, um, at, at, portrait, at, at, sorry, at paintings, at sculpture, at drawings, at prints, uh, the whole decade, uh, sorry, the whole century, the whole 16th century. Um, and what we tried to do here was to um, pick up sort of uh, um, the ideas that were introduced there and look at one moment in time, the beginning of the 16th century, um, the making of that golden age and how it all came into being. So the transition from, from Bellini to Titian and, and, and um, identifying again as our protagonist, Giorgione. And there are these two portraits. Um, as I mentioned, on the, on the left-hand side, uh, the portrait of Burkhard of Speyer by Albrecht Dürer. Um, and another portrait of an unknown um, sitter to the right. Uh, they were both painted in 1506. Uh, and with the portraits um, by Dürer, you see sort of his meticulous attention or interest in detail. And you don't see it in the reproductions, but when you go upstairs and you look at the pictures and, and do walk up close, there are no barriers in front of the, in, in, in this room. All the pictures are glazed here. So you can walk up right close and look at them and please do so. Uh, and you see sort of the attention, sort of he paints every single individual hair. And if you look at the, at the eyes um, uh, of Burkhard of Speyer, they're, they're watery eyes and the sort of the, the, um, the, the realism and, 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 and sort of the, the detail, the information that he gives us to convey these details is ab absolutely astonishing still today. And it would have been a revelation to Venetian artists at the time. But the centerpiece uh, on that wall is, is the terrace portrait. And um, I show it to you bigger in this wonderful frame, um, which is probably not original. I mean, it's, it's surely not original, but it looks to me like a 16th century frame. Um, again, as I said, it's a small panel, um, the size of an A4 sheet of paper. And, um, and I just want to say a few word, uh, words about Giorgione and this enigma that is Giorgione before talking about the picture. So Giorgione, we, we know hardly anything about his life. Um, all we know, we know from Giorgio Vasari, almost all we know, uh, who lived later and never actually met Giorgione. So he wrote the first edition of his famous Lives, uh, The Artist's Lives, in uh, 1550, as uh, 40 years after Giorgione died. He never met him, but he gives us a very, um, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, a descriptive um, account of his life. 
Um, and he, he says that he was born in 1477 or 78 uh, in Franco, Veneto, a little village, just uh, 40 kilometers or so outside of Venice. Uh, and that he, um, that he then moved to Venice where he became a painter and he lived in Venice and died in 1510, probably of the plague. And we have documents, we know more about Giorgione's death than we know about his entire life. There are documents um, uh, uh, um, that explain what, um, you know, relating to his death. So, so he wasn't only in his early 30s. And, and um, Vasari gives us this account, he, he calls him a lute player, a man who loved life, uh, who loved women, and, um, and gives us this sort of account almost of a, of a playboy, uh, which of course we have absolutely no idea if that is true or not, or where Vasari, how he could have possibly known that. Um, but that is sort of the, um, the, 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 the myth that, 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 that sort of um, uh, Vasari created. And, and, and because we know we have so little facts about Giorgione's life, um, this myth was able to linger on for the last 500 years. Um, as I said, there are only very few paintings that we actually know that survived. There are only um, two, docu two commissions that are documented, one for the Doge's Palace and one for the Fondaco dei Tedeschi, the only fragment of the Fondaco I've shown you earlier. Um, nothing else survives, so that is a problem. Um, and there are only two works that have an inscription on the back of the panel. And then some other works are mentioned in early, um, in early, in early documents. Um, but as I said, there are only about a, a dozen or so works that we all agree on. And this is one of them. This is the keystone. Uh, it is a painting that was probably, it also has a date inscribed on the back. Sadly, we can't quite read it. Now here we have a date, but we can't read it. But we think it says 1506. So that would mean that at least the four first pictures in that gallery, the, the paint the portrait by Giovanni Bellini, the Tudura portraits and the so-called terrace portrait were all painted in the same moment, which is um, very, very exciting. And I think if you see them together, they're all on panel, they're all more or less the same size, and they're stylistically not so different from each other. Um, so they make a very nice, very nice group. Um, um, maybe one word about the provenance of this picture. Um, it emerged relatively late. It was its early um, whereabouts are known. We know that in, by 1930, it was in the collection of Alexander Terrace. He was a Scottish coal merchant, so it was in, in Britain. Um, and it was then eventually sold and acquired in 1941 by the San Diego Museum of Art. Mm. So that's why, the, because of its former owner, um, still 20th century owner, it's important to remember, uh, we, we call this the, the terrace portrait, just so um, I might refer to it again as the terrace portrait. And I think, now I've had the great fortune to live with this picture now for almost 10 days, and every day I look at it, um, it, 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 it grows on me even more, it keeps giving. And I think that is the greatest compliment, um, um, you know, the, the um, the, 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 what great pictures do is that they don't fall apart the more you look at them, but they keep giving. And um, what I find so extraordinary here, so the, uh, as opposed to the Dura portrait and the, um, and the Bellini, none of them feature hands yet, so you see the hands are not, it's all about the face. Uh, but Giorgione, he has moved in even closer to the, to the sitter. And unlike the Bocard of Speyer and the, and the Bellini, the sitter is now looking at us. Again, we don't know who the sitter is. Um, it would have been known, of course, at the time, was just something that is, has been lost over time. Um, but sort of this intensity of the encounter, his, his gaze, sort of, and catching our gaze, and, and we, we've moved in even a little bit closer. It becomes sort of psychologically much more engaging than the much more elegant and removed, maybe, portrait by, by Bellini. So there's something that, that Giorgione starts, um, a, a change that, that Giorgione starts introducing. Stylistically, I find this very in interesting for two reasons. And again, walk up, look at it up close. It merits close investigation. Um, there's an undermodeling, which results in this beautiful sort of gradation of light and shade. Um, so unlike Bellini or Dürer, who would paint their effects of light and shade on top, adding black on top of the paint surface, 
uh, Giorgione very much like Leonardo da Vinci, and he was really the only other artist at the time who did that. Um, they painted a, um, a grisaille, a chiaroscuro, black and white under-modeling of the face, and then added the, the colors of the, the, you know, the flesh tones on top. So this five o'clock shadow that you can see here is actually shining through the paint layers, and that is just something absolutely stunning and extraordinary, which nobody else, nobody but Leonardo da Vinci did at the time. Leonardo, at the time, he was back in Venice um, at this time, in 15, by 1506, and it was very much the same moment that Leonardo then painted the Mona Lisa. So, it, you know, just as a point of reference. Um, the, the other thing that I find, um, I find extraordinary, and, and that was something I didn't notice at first. Uh, what I noticed at first was that he uses very small brushes, very similar to Dürer, so it's just a little bit softer than Dürer. Um, and then I started noticing that, for example, in the hair, he uses slightly bigger brushes, and it's sort of very painterly how he just describes the texture of the hair. So he doesn't paint the individual hairs, he's just describing the texture. And then there's one detail that I find, um, almost once you notice it, you can't not see it. It's this red line that is going right across his mouth. Um, and that is something very odd. It's almost an abstract red line. And it is something that uh, you don't find in Dürer or in Bellini. Um, it is something much more typical maybe for Titian. It's quite a bold move, very painterly. With one bigger brush, he's painting this red. And it only the illusion only works if you step further away from it. So if I show you the picture smaller, maybe you can see that the illusion of the mouth works. But if you see it up close, you think, what is that red line? It is incredibly bold, incredibly beautiful. So that is our first room. There is one, um, um, another picture, a fifth picture in this room. Um, and we're introducing here a, a question, the problem of attribution, which um, if, if, you, if you make the attempt to put together an exhibition on the early 16th century um, in, in, in Venice, it is a problem that you, um, uh, as curators, that you're faced with, and it's something that we cannot ignore. So doing an exhibition on this period is, is a very brave endeavor, or you might even call it a stupid endeavor, because there's so little documentation. Now, a picture like this one, which we show in the exhibition S. Giorgione, uh, it is the so-called Giustiniani portrait, because it was rediscovered in the 19th century in the Giustiniani collection in Venice. And when it was rediscovered, again, like the terrace portrait, we don't know its earlier whereabouts, but when it was rediscovered, it was very quickly um, attributed, identified as a work by Giorgione. And over the last hundred odd years, this attribution hasn't really been challenged, which is quite interesting because in the, then afterwards, in the meantime, other pictures like the terrace portrait have emerged um, 30, 40 years after. So when this portrait was first attributed, the terrace portrait was not known. Um, and I think it's worth sort of re-evaluating these attributions and we have to um, as art historians always check and double check um, these attributions which are often made on stylistic grounds um, and, and it's important to show these works together to start thinking about, you know, rethinking attributions. And in this case, um, there's only one art historian who, who has compared this work um, to a painting by Titian and um, uh, so this is the, the so-called Man with the Blue Sleeve by Titian, um, which is now in the National Gallery, just um, around the corner. And I show them to you together here. And Paul Joannides, formerly well, now Professor Emeritus uh, from the Academ uh, uh, University of Cambridge, he includes the Giustiniani portrait. He's the only one, really, who, um, in, in my view, completely correctly identifies this as a work by the young Titian. Um, he included it in his book on the young Titian, putting it into context with later pictures like, like this one. Um, and I think if you see them together, you know, it's a very convincing argument. So what we did to just introduce this question of attribution without, you know, making, it, making too much of it in the exhibition, um, to approach it in a playful way, we asked Paul Joannidis to explain in 300 words on one page, as it were, why he thinks it is by Titian. And we asked somebody else, um, Peter Humphrey, who was professor uh, um, in, um, uh, in, in Scotland um, uh, at St. Andrews, to explain why he thinks it is by Giorgione. So we put them next to each other on our website, 
And this is fairly unusual. Usually, you know, we, we all, art historians argue one way or another and the debate is not carried out publicly. But we want to change that. We want the debate. So we ask them um, to present two views and then we present them side by side and you can go online and you can vote. Uh, which argument you find more convincing. So there is no proof. We will never know who painted this portrait here on the right, but we basically want to invite you to step up, to look closely, to, 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 um, um, to, to have your own opinion, to compare this portrait, the Giustiniani portrait on the right, to the terrace portrait, which is right next to it, um, or to think, you know, could this be maybe by somebody else, could this be by Titian? I don't want to influence you, but I just want to say um, a couple of things why I think it is um, by Titian. <laughs> the, uh, the, um, you see, Titian has this sort of great interest in sort of this quilted, in the padded silk of the, of the, the drapery, the sleeve. Um, exactly the same interest you can see, you can see in a portrait like this. Um, it is not working quite yet, so this is still the very young Titian. So Titian uh, was probably around 10 years younger than Giorgione was. So in the period that, that we're looking at, in that first decade, he was still very much a teenager. And he's just about 20 in 1510. So I think that this portrait may actually have been painted very much in the same moment as the other four pictures in the room. But it is something completely different in, in type. So here we're now stepping back further. Um, the parapet is still here, but it looks a bit different. Um, it now becomes more, sort of the illusion of space becomes more convincing. Um, so he picks up an idea from Bellini, whom we think may have been his, his master, his teacher. Um, and now we see the hand, and that is something very important. And this is a beautifully painted hand creeping over the edge of the parapet. Um, and that, again, is very, very Titian-esque, and you find it in other, in other portraits by, by Titian. Um, you also find it in paintings by Giorgione. So we, the, the two of them were very close and, and very much influenced each other in those years, or as I said, s sat one on top of the other. And so that's why there are quite a few pictures that used to be attributed to one or the other, and then art historians sort of shift their, change their mind. Um, now, what he, here basically we want to invite everyone to rethink um, these questions of attribution um, uh, without you know, stressing it too much. At the end of the day, uh, we'll end up with the best guess. Um, but um, do go and vote. and. Um, and 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 uh, yeah, and and don't vote for Giorgione. <laughs> but having having said that, in the exhibition we show it we show it as a Giorgione in the catalogue. We um, explain the whole history, the critical history of the picture, and why it has been given to Giorgione. Uh, and so we we try to be very conservative. We try not to um, we try to stick to the generally accepted line you know, of of scholarship. Um, but at the same time, very carefully, we want to sort of start introducing some questions. Um, now, I used to work at the National Gallery, and a few years ago, we did an exhibition on Leonardo da Vinci, which you may have seen. And there was a subplot in the exhibition focusing on, on the most gifted artist, sort of follower of Leonardo, um, and that was uh, Boltraffio. Uh, and there were more pictures by Boltraffio together in one place than there ever have been. There has never been a monographic show on, on Boltraffio. And we thought it was sort of enriched the overall narrative. I mean, it may have gone unnoticed by many, but it, it, it sort of helped to um, uh, um, explain what else was going on and to show the influence that Leonardo had on somebody who was following him. Now, in this exhibition, we, we try something similar. And... Um, our Boltraffio, in this case, is an artist by the name of Giovanni Cariani. And there are um, quite a few pictures by him in the exhibition. And I'll show you one, um, which is in the, in the second room, still devoted to, to portraits. Um, and this is a picture from San Francisco. Um, and this is a, a portrait from a few years later. All of the portraits in the second room uh, are 5, 10, maybe 15 years later. Than the, than the pictures that we start with. So by this, at this moment in time, uh, you now see that the, the, the parapet is still there, but just about. So you find them about half of the pictures, and, and, and it then disappears in those years. But this is now very much the established type of portraiture um, during those years, and, and really since then. I mean, now, you know, this is what portraits, the modern portrait, came to look like. Um, so we, we show the figure in half length, uh, it's not only about the eyes anymore. Now, he's not looking at us, which is fairly unusual. Most of the portraits in the second room look at us. But now we always have hands, 
And you know, the hands become very important in, in modern portraiture to convey some sort of state of emotional, you know, emotion, emotion, um, to characterize the sitter further. And you know, props, um, attributes are now being used. So in this case, he's holding a book. Um, literature in those years in Venice um, was very important, poetry um, and literature. Venice was also the center of the publishing world very much in, um, in Venice, sorry, in, in Italy over those years. Aldus Manutius was the, was the great publisher. Um, and there was a sort of certain sense of um, a sort of a romantic sense, um, uh, a sort of a romantic sentiment and uh, something that sort of adds to the myth of Giorgione and the enigma and the mysterious. And you find it in a lot of the portraits um, in the second room. Um, and then you also find it in, um, uh, in the next section, which I will move on to. I just want to show you one more picture. This picture, uh, again, sadly, we would have uh, really, we wanted it in the show. Um, this is also by Giovanni Cariani. This is um, considered to be his most important work, his masterpiece, which is in Washington, National Gallery of Art in Washington. Um, and they, they, couldn't, they couldn't send it, sadly. But now we see, this is a bit later. This is now, I think, in 1530s, early 30s. Um, uh, and you see within a few years how far portraiture had come. If you think of the terrace portrait, and within sort of 10, 20 years, uh, portraiture, portraits looked like this, and often of, also involved more than one um, sitter. Now, the next section uh, in the exhibition has this wonderfully imaginative title. I, I realize that our, our, our titles, are, uh, we could have sort of re, we, we could have thought about them again, which we didn't. And, we should have called it the allure of nature or something, but we didn't, we called it landscape. There's a reason why we called it landscape. The genre landscape at the time didn't exist, uh, but paintings like this, like the Tempesta, um, appeared for the first time in inventories at the, in the 16th century, uh, slightly after Giorgione's death, and they were being described as landscapes. So this picture was described in the, in the collection of the Vendramin family as a landscape with a gypsy and, a, and a, with a gypsy and a soldier. Now you probably know or this picture a little bit and, the, and the, how we don't actually know what this represents and a lot of art historians have suggested all kinds of readings. The interesting thing is that already within a decade after Giorgione's death in the 1520s, Marc Antonio Michiel who went to Venetian collections and looked at these pictures and described them, he had no idea what this picture was about. He called it a gypsy and a soldier. Absolutely no idea what this picture was already in 1520. Um, but what he did realize is that the landscape was quite important. And that, of course, is, um, is the whole point of these pictures. And Giorgione was the great representative, who, um, the most important um, representative who introduced this new genre um, pictures that where landscape now became more important and the narrative wasn't religious, the subject matter. It wasn't necessarily mythological. Um, it would have been commissioned by the Vendramin family, I think very much a bespoke picture. They would have discussed with him probably some sort of family myth that they wanted to, to have represented, which they then could explain to their friends and visitors. Um, but um, the, so the, it, although the landscape and of course you know the the expressive land landscape the the, the storm the tempesta the tempest um, nature is not only not only a, a sheer backdrop now but it becomes sort of the protagonist and it enters center stage um, it's not only a landscape there are always figures there that's why we can't really call them sheer landscapes but landscape in in those years um, become more important and this picture which is the centerpiece in, in that second section on landscape or the allure of nature. Uh, the so-called Tramonto from the National Gallery, um, again, is a picture that was only rediscovered in the 1930s. When it was discovered, it, uh, it was very damaged. And this entire part of the picture was repainted, um, not even restored. It was, it was actually reconstructed. Um, there was a big hole in the canvas, which was patched up with other old pieces of canvas. And this figure here of St. George and the Dragon, which is quite beautifully painted, was painted in the 1930s. Um, so you have to, and even in the reproduction, you can tell that there's something strange going on on the paint surface here. So this part of the picture you can entirely ignore. Um, the rest of the picture is in remarkably good condition, though. Um, so all of the rest, the landscapes, the rocks here in the foreground, the trees, um, the two figures here in the foreground, they're entirely original. There's a little Bosch-like bird coming out of the water 
original. Um, and then the beautiful, the, the townscape here is very typical for um, pictures at the time and, and for Giorgione. And then this beautiful twilight. So somebody described that um, um, what happens in those in, 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 in that in that transition from Bellini to Giorgione and Titian, um, that sort of the blue sky Bellini's blue sky gave way to the twilight of, of intrigue. And that's what you, this sort of the twilight, that is what, what is Giorgione, what Giorgione is all about. And this is the most beautiful part of the picture. Stylistically very, very similar to the, uh, to, to the, to the terrace portrait, although a very different type of picture. Um, I think um, uh, stylistically very, very similar, this sort of beautiful, the transition um, of, of colors. Now, what happens here, again, the, sort of the, the tree here is, is first and foremost a compositional device that draws our attention to these two figures in the foreground, a young man who's seated here on this rock and an elderly man tending to him. And, but who they are, what they're doing, we don't know. Um, but that, you know, there is a narrative, we just can't read it anymore. Um, again, as I said, all of, all of these figures, they're sort of a hermit here in the background, ignore them, they're not original. But what is important is that the tree, at the same time, takes center stage and is framed by the, by the landscape to either side. So like the Tempesta, this very much is um, a, a picture very closely connected to the Tempesta, um, uh, which shows how important that the landscape now becomes more important um, and, the, and the mood that it tries to convey. If you weren't rich enough to ask Giorgione to paint you a picture like the Tempesta or like the Tamonto, you would go to another artist, um, you would go to Domenico Campagnola, and this is, we only have one of his drawings in the, in the show. These are very typical um, drawings at the time. It's the first time the drawings were not preparatory for a picture, but they were actually finished works in their own right who were collected by a new type of patron, by these sophisticated you know, humanist collector connoisseurs. Um, and we juxtaposed it, we showed um, together with um, this drawing by Albrecht Dürer, which he did a few years earlier. This is from his first visit to, um, to Venice in the 1490s. But if you look at them together, I think it becomes clear very quickly the, um, that, of course, artists in Venice would have been very much impressed by, by Dürer and his meticulous attention to detail, again, like in the portraits in the, in the first room. Um, but what, what Dürer does, he records a specific moment, a specific place at a specific moment. Um, it's a meticulous record of, of a specific place, whereas the Venetians, um, of course, not being Germans, uh, they're much more, um, it's much more romantic, it's idealized. These are not, this, is not, this is a Venetian landscape, a Veneto landscape, but it's not, and we, again, you see the same houses that you see in the, in the Tramonto. Very much the same thing as the Tramonto was. You have some... Uh, you know, two shepherd boys, uh, you have more figures sitting back here and another couple uh, over there. There's a narrative, we just can't know, we don't know what the narrative is. Um, this is idealized, this is sort of a, uh, and much more, meant to be much more decorative and, and, um, than, um, uh, than the work by Dürer. So this is quite a nice juxtaposition of the difference of northern art and uh, what in part it brought to Venetian art, but also how the Venetians then turned it into entirely into, into their thing. Um, and this is another picture in this room which I just wanted to mention. It's a very beautiful picture. And um, we showed together next to, the, next to the Dürer as well because Lorenzo Lotto, who painted this, uh, was also very influenced by Dürer, we know. Um, and if he didn't know this drawing, he certainly knew Dürer's prints. And I think you see that in the, in the rocks, um, which are not very Giorgionesque, but the um, uh, Giorgione, is witness, you know, he sort of the, he influences the, of course, that twilight moment again, the, the sunset in the background. The largest room in the exhibition uh, is, is um, devoted to religious pictures. And Giorgione preferred to work on a smaller scale. This is the largest um, devotional work that he did, which uh, is an altarpiece in Castelfranco Veneto, the so-called Castelfranco altarpiece, um, which is very, um, Bellini-esque in composition, you know, with the Virgin and Child in the center and very symmetrical. Uh, it is about two meters tall, so the figures are um, smaller than life-size. So Giorgione preferred to work on a smaller scale. Um, this picture is not, is not uh, in the exhibition. Sadly, another picture we couldn't get. Um, but we got another picture from the Hermitage, which is a beautiful picture. Again, I think very much by Giorgione, on a very small picture. Um, 
and a small devotional work, which would have been commissioned, you know, for a family, family palace. And it's so beautiful to see how the, the Virgin, she's probably just finished nursing um, the child and holding the Christ child, so protecting his head. It's an incredible, um, very, very tender moment that is being depicted here. And Georgiana, I think, um, was someone who, more than other artists, sort of saw the, the subtleties and would understand, you know, would be able to capture a moment like this so beautifully. The most famous altarpiece that was painted in Venice, uh, the most famous religious work um, uh, in those years, was Bellini's San Zaccaria altarpiece, which is still in San Zaccaria in Venice. It's huge. It's, I think, four meters. Um, we, uh, we see five meters tall. Um, and that would have been the point of reference for, for all Venetian artists at the time. They all knew this picture. And we can... We know that because we find artists sort of referring to it, sort of taking motifs, copying them. We have quite a few works in the exhibition which um, are straightly taken from the San Zaccaria altarpiece. Painted in 1505, so we couldn't get the San Zaccaria altarpiece, but we could um, get this picture, which is a picture from Birmingham. And, and uh, it's a beautiful, much smaller work, um, but still it's about... It's about um, um, it's about a meter tall. Um, it's a, it's it, it's it's a um, probably for um, might be for family chapel, but I think it's probably for for, for a Venetian palace for a house. Um, and to basically, it was important for us to have one work by Bellini in this room again as a point of reference to show the point of departure. Um, so you see the, the 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 quiet calm of these compositions and the symmetry, um, often with the Virgin and Child in the center, flanked by saints. Here we have a kneeling donor, a patron, which was relatively unusual for Venetian art. Um, you find it more in, in Florence, you find it quite a lot in Venice, you didn't. Um, and this strange shadow, which um, we thought about a lot, and I still, it must, have, it must be cast, the, the scene is lit from the left, so there must be a column or something on the left. But why the shadow is here, other than acting again as a devotional, a compositional device, highlighting the, 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 the figure of the patron. Um, I don't know, it's quite prominent when you're there, you notice it. Um, and again, it's the blue sky, it's the sort of the rich colors, the blues and the reds, and, and that was what Venetian art looked like in the late 15th century still. And we juxtapose it with um, two pictures by, by Titian. So Titian now becomes the protagonist um, in, this, in this gallery. As I said, he was still a teenager. This was probably painted towards the end of the decade. Um, so he would have been maybe, maybe around 20 years old. So you see him responding to Bellini. The, the floor is very similar to the Birmingham picture. Um, and you see the same light, the same blues and reds. Um, but he's now moved the protagonist, the most important uh, figure, St. Peter, out of the center of the composition. So here again, we have a kneeling patron. This is uh, Jacopo Pesaro being presented by Pope Alexander VI here, the Borgia Pope, to St. Peter. So although Titian is now already starting to move things around to avoid symmetry, it is still very, the hierarchy works um, very much and it's a very uh, clear uh, composition. And the light, the colors are still very similar to Bellini. Um, and at the same time, he paints this picture, which is from Glasgow, from the Kelvin Grove Art Gallery in, in Glasgow, um, Christ and the Adulteress. And this is painted at the same moment, and here it's something completely different starts to happen. And I think what he's, he's here he's more influenced by Giorgione than he is by, Tisch, by Bellini. And both of these pictures were at the Royal Academy in, in the 1983 exhibition on the genius of Venice, and this picture then was still attributed to Giorgione. So within the last, over the last 30 years now, scholarship has uh, reassessed uh, this picture, and we now all agree, I think, that this picture is by, the, by, by Titian. And, but it, it was probably given to Giorgione because of the twilight, the dark, the, you know, the shadow, the protagonist, Christ, the most important figure, is moved all the way to the back. He's not in the center of the composition anymore. He's moved all the way to the back and sort of bathed in, in shadow. Again, very Giorgione-esque moment. Um, this is now so Titian introducing sort of something completely new, having learned something both from Bellini and from Giorgione, but he's now making it his own. The movement, I think, is so extraordinary. So it's not the symmetry that all sort of almost lined up like on a string on this sort of path diagonally, but it's this figure, this soldier here in the foreground who's drawing us into the composition. And it's got this extraordinary sort of power of movement that then Titian 
um, uh, would, would um, very quickly explore further, and that would make his large-scale composition so powerful. So Titian loved to work on the, large, on the larger scale. Um, both of these pictures by Titian, I should mention, they're on canvas, they're no longer on, on panel, so it is also the moment, the early 16th century is the, marks the transition from, um, from, from, from panel to canvas. It was Venice that brought us brought the canvas to Western art. About um, half the pictures in the show are on, on panel, half of them are on canvas. So it's really the moment, the, sh the shift from one to the other. And I just very quickly, in our last section, because I still want to leave um, a few minutes for questions, um, talk about the La Vecchia, which is the highlight of the exhibition. As I said, a picture from the Vendramin collection where it was catalogued, very, the same collection and the same family, the Vendramin family, who owned the Tempesta. And it was catalogued then in the 16th century as a painting by Giorgione of his mother. Now, we don't know if it is his mother, um, and much has been written about her. Um, and we don't know whom she represents, but I think what is important and this piece of paper she's holding gives us a clue. Um, it says, col tempo, with time. So it's now, um, it becomes an allegory, an allegory of aging, of old age. Uh, and she has been, often been compared. It's very unusual to see a portrait of an old woman at that time. Um, you know, it, it much more reminds you of Rembrandt, but that's 100 years later. So at the time, this was, was highly unusual. And, um, and the question is, is it, re is it really about the individual sitter? Like the terrorist portrait clearly was a portrait about, you know, of this man um, whom we can't identify anymore. But here the question is, is it really a portrait of the old woman or, uh, or even though he probably made a, the portrait from life, or is it pointing beyond the actual sitter? Um, does it become something more meaningful? Does it become allegorical and actually um, represent something much, much larger? Uh, it's a beautiful picture, which is often compared to Leonardo's grotesque drawings of old um, um, men and women. Um, and none of that I actually see here, because she's got a very warm face. We immediately like her, I think. And her, her, she's got the wrinkles around her eyes. She's, she's got smiling eyes, which is, I think, why, why we like her so. It's a beautifully painted hand, the, the sort of light and shade of, her, um, of the drapery here. Um, so. Um, this is the last picture in the show. We show it together with another painting by Giovanni Cariani of Judith and Holofernes, and we see here the maid um, is a clear citation, is a quotation of the picture by, of, of La Vecchia. So we know that Cariani must have seen Giorgione's portrait of the old woman. Um, and we basically, again, we try to show this influence that um, Giorgione had on other artists, not only on the young Titian, but also on artists like Cariani and other artists like Lotto working in Venice in those years. Um, but I think this is an um, appropriate picture to, to end on. Um, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.